Hi, my name is Danae. I'm one of the youth pastors here at Northview. I want to welcome you here to the service. We want to give a special welcome to Real Life Community Church and Winepress Church in Penticton. We also know that we have missionaries from around the world tuning in, as well as those of you who are here maybe for the first time. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstance, we're glad that you've chosen to join us here today. We have a few things for you to know before we begin today. If you have little children running around, we have a special children's video just for them. You can find that on our main page, northview.org. Second, if you're on social media, we would love to see pictures about how you are enjoying church. You can hashtag Northview TV or tag us at Northview Community Church. Honestly, one of my favorite things to do after watching this service is to go to our Northview Instagram and flip through all the pictures of how our church family has been enjoying the service together. It somehow makes me feel closer to you. We also want you to know how you can stay connected to Northview throughout the week. On our Northview main page, you can find links to all kinds of blogs, interviews, and resources. You can sign up to an online community group or join a Bible study for men, women, youth, and children. It's all accessible on our main page at northview.org. And since I'm one of the youth pastors here, I wanna take a couple seconds to highlight what we've been doing in our youth ministry. For the past couple of weeks, we've been doing small groups over Zoom. Our middle school and high school youth ministries have been posting weekly over YouTube. If you haven't been able to connect with us, we encourage you to look us up. You can find us on the website or you can search us on Instagram at Northview Youth. In a moment, we're gonna join Frank and the team as they lead us in songs of worship. To begin, we're gonna start by reading from Psalm 107. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders.
Today we're going to be continuing in our sermon series called Storms with Pastor Mark Birch teaching us. So fill up your coffee and if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 14. Well, it is so good to be with you wherever you happen to be watching from. And as Danae just mentioned, we are going to be reading together in Matthew 14. So if you have your Bibles with you, that would be great as we turn there in just a couple moments. We are indeed in very unique times, and I think the phrase that I've heard most often these last few weeks is the phrase surreal. Just seems like we're going to wake up one morning and realize that this was all just a dream that we had imagined. And it's not just, of course, the COVID-19 virus specifically and the health effects, but it's all the spillover in education and work and business and economics, layoffs, all of those issues. And then seven to eight weeks into this thing, when it seemed like we were just beginning to see some light at the end of the tunnel, we get the horrific news last weekend of the worst mass shooting in Canadian history out in Nova Scotia. And collectively, we are grieving. We're in shock to some degree. We're looking to one another and we're looking to the Lord and saying, what is our comfort in this time of crisis? And it is so good that we have this medium to be able to connect together in such an effective way. Yes, we are isolated from one another physically, but there's no need for us to be isolated socially and relationally. Every week we are getting news of people who are joining for the very first time Northview online. And if you happen to be joining us for the very first time this weekend, I wanna say a very special welcome to you. If it would be helpful to you, we would love to connect with you. Just drop us an email there on the website. One of our pastors or our staff would be willing to follow up with you. But if there is some good news in this time, it is that we are all on the same page. We are all paying attention. We are in this storm together. I don't think there's been any other time in my lifetime where the entire world was preoccupied with the same crisis at the same moment in time. Charles Spurgeon uh, is credited with saying to his young preacher boys in training, if you preach to the brokenhearted, you will never lack for an audience. Because there's always somebody in every congregation who is either in the midst of a hard time or coming out of a hard time or headed into a storm, a crisis, a hard time. And so if you preach to the brokenhearted, there is always someone that it applies to. But in this unique season, all of us are sitting to attention. All of us are asking questions during this stormy time and looking for hope. Uh, Jeff mentioned last weekend that we've done some different planning with our sermons from what we had planned. Because back in December, had you told us that by spring break, the world would have effectively been shut down? That schools and businesses would be closed? International travel suspended? Millions of unemployed and nearly 200,000 deaths around the globe. We probably would have said to you, you're spending too much time in the apocalyptic division of the library. Get out and look at real life. But everything has shifted. And so too our preaching has shifted. We decided to set aside the series that we had planned for this spring. We'll come back to it later. It's still important. But right now, let's focus on this time of crisis, these times of storms. And so we're looking for four weeks at four storm stories, two from the New Testament and two from the Old Testament. And Pastor Jeff started us last weekend. 
And this week we're in Matthew 14, and so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles or just follow along with the reading there on the screen. But in Matthew 14, verse 22, we start this way. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, for many of you, this is a familiar story, particularly if you grew up in church going to Sunday school. You would have heard this a time or two about Peter and Jesus barefooting behind the boat on the lake. But I want to make a few observations, just point out three things that stood out to me in this text, and then try to connect them to this time that we're living in. And if you don't know the context, maybe just a couple comments about that are important. On the macro level, Jesus is about two-thirds of the way through his earthly ministry. His three-year ministry, this is the end of the two-year, beginning of the three-year mark, and he is at the height of his popularity. That is going to shift dramatically in the coming months as he heads towards Calvary. But for right now, he is the latest rock star in first century Judea, Galilee, and Israel. But more specifically to this text, if you get down in the weeds a bit, our story takes place at the end of a very busy day of ministry that started with some very bad news. Earlier that day, Jesus got the news that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been put to death. John was not only his cousin, but he was his forerunner in ministry. He was this eccentric, wild-haired preacher who went ahead of Jesus, calling for national renewal and revival and repentance. And John had made a lot of enemies because he was so politically incorrect. His fate was sealed when he took his message of repentance all the way to the palace. You see, the king at that time had stolen his brother's wife. And John calls him out publicly on this, and King Herod was not pleased. John is arrested, and ultimately he is beheaded. So the day that we are ending this story with started with this bad news. Jesus hears that John is dead. And you can piece together the conversation from here in Matthew 14, Mark 6, John 6, that Jesus, in essence, says to his disciples, guys, we've been working hard, you've been serving, you've been on a ministry trip. Let's just take the day off. I need to get away with you. I want to spend some time. We need to talk. We need to pray. 
We need to grieve together. And so they put out in a boat to head off to another side of the lake. But what the text tells us is the crowds saw them getting into the boat and began to run around the north end of that lake. And by the time that they had landed a few hours later, the crowds were already gathering, waiting for Jesus to arrive. And so Jesus, rather than getting a day off, lands on the shore. The crowds are there. And our text says he has compassion on them. And he spends the day teaching them and healing, working some miracles. And significantly, he feeds, on this occasion, 5,000 men plus women and children. They find one small boy who has a lunch of five loaves and two fish, and Jesus multiplies it, and everybody apparently gets a tuna fish sandwich, and there's leftovers to boot. So this is how the day starts. And finally, at the end of a long, hot day of ministry, he sends the crowds away, and he puts the boys in the boat, and he heads up the hillside to pray. So the first thing that I want to mention, the first thing that's worth taking special note of is this, that Jesus sent them out into that storm. Last week was a very similar story in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus said, let's go to the other side, and, and Jeff used the outline, Jesus led them into the storm. And this week, we would just simply substitute one word. Not only did Jesus lead them into the storm, Jesus actually sent them into the storm. You see, the word Matthew uses is a strong word in verse 22. He made them get into the boat. It's translated to force or to compel. Now, you might be thinking, well, Jesus really just needed some time alone. And he's like, get in the boat, boys. He was grieving John the Baptist's death. He wanted to escape by himself. But it raises an obvious question. Because as Jesus is God, and he is, and if he knew that a storm was brewing, and we believe he did, if he knew the future as we know he does, past, present, and future, then why would he send them out? And it's a theme that comes up again and again throughout the Bible, and it pushes us into some deep waters of theological argument. This question, does God not only allow, but does he sometimes actually orchestrate events that we might call storms. And how you answer that question reveals a huge amount about what you believe or don't believe about God's sovereignty over our lives. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but let me just quickly point out three other stories. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, the 11th son of Jacob, is sold by his older brothers into slavery, slavery in Egypt. They're jealous of them. And at the end of his story, some 30 years later, we see the conclusion when he speaks to his brothers in Genesis 50, and he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, looking back on his life, Joseph says, what you intended as evil, God has turned to good, but it took 30 years for him to see that evidence. Later in Israel's history, Babylon would invade Jerusalem, conquer them, take all of the upper echelon of society as prisoners of war and drag them across a desert and drop them into the middle of Babylon. And Psalm 121 is a psalm of lament. Psalm 127, rather. 
How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? We've, we hung our guitars up on the trees, they say. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. Our tormentors demand us to sing the party tunes of Jerusalem. But how can we sing those songs when we're prisoners of war? And the Lord sends them a letter, a very famous letter in Jeremiah 29. And the letter opens by this saying, To those that Nebuchadnezzar carried to Babylon, and then when the Lord begins to speak in Jeremiah 29, 4, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says to those I carried into exile. And from there on out in that letter, Nebuchadnezzar gets not a single ounce of the credit for this crisis. God says, I'm the one who sent you there. I've got plans for you. I've got a future and a hope for you. Good plans. So settle down. Give your kids in marriage. Build houses. Plant gardens. There is a future and there is a hope for you. In the New Testament, Apostle Paul talks about a storm in his life that he calls a thorn in the flesh. Some struggle, some trial, some ongoing issue that we are never told what it is, but he asks God, he begs God repeatedly, take it away, take it away, take it away. And the Lord's answer to Paul is no. Because in your weakness, you cry out to me, and I'm able to show my strength through you. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 puts it this way, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. See, all of these texts and many others like them tell us that there are times in our lives when Jesus actually sends us into the storm. Number two is this, that the storm was real. And it might sound obvious, but I think it's worthy taking note. Verse 24, we were reading earlier in the New International Version. It uses the word buffeted that the boat was buffeted by the waves. That's not a word that we use too much in our modern language. We use the word, like other translations, beaten. The, the boat was being beaten by the waves. And again, it is a very strong word, the original language. It's translated as to suffer or to afflict or to experience pain and agony. But most often, the most frequent translation of this word is literally the word torment. The waves were beating the boat. The waves were tormenting the boat. And the reason behind this, Jeff mentioned last week, that these kind of storms are not uncommon even to this day on this particular body of water, is because the Sea of Galilee is situated in this little basin in the Rift Valley of the Jordan River between two mountain ranges on the east and the west. And it's just a small little lake. It's, it's about the same length as Lake Osoyoos in the southern Okanagan, but a little different in that it's as wide as it is long. And the sea itself is actually the second lowest sea on the planet. It is 700 feet below sea level. The hills to the west rise some 1,400 feet. The hills to the east, the Golan Heights, rise to 2,500 feet. And this little lake is like in the bottom of a punch bowl in the middle of this dry, arid, Middle Eastern heat where the average temperature year-round is 87 degrees. In the summer months, June to September, the average temperature is 100 degrees. And so you can see the sun beating down on this little punch bowl, and when there are no winds, it heats up like crazy. But when the winds come off the hills, from either the east or the west, the cooler air coming down off the tops of the mountains, some two to 3,000 feet down to the level of the lake, 
cause this dramatic gusts of wind, the cold air hitting the warm air, and the gale force blasts of wind, and the dramatic rise and fall in temperatures, and literally it can happen in just a few moments. The closest thing that we have to it in Western Canada is what we know as Chinook winds. And it's literally the same geographic feature that the moist air from the Mediterranean coming over the hills of Galilee or the moist air from the Pacific Ocean rising over the Rocky Mountains, dropping their moisture and then the cold air sweeping down into the foothills and the crazy winds that take place in all those cities along the foothills. And all of that to say is this, we've got to acknowledge when we're in the grips of a storm. It does us no good to be a storm denier. The obvious facts that the wind was tormenting that boat. We've got to give people the freedom to grieve. And we all grieve differently. Denial and anger and blame and acceptance and then on to future planning. And we're at different stages at different times. And we need to simply acknowledge this storm is real. But finally, the third observation is just this, and it too is obvious, but this storm is a test. And Jesus implies something significant in his dialogue with Peter. He invites him out on the water, but when Peter sees the wind, he begins to sink, and Jesus replies with these words, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That phrase you of little faith appears four times in Matthew's gospel, and it is always used in the same way. It is always used as a gentle rebuke. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why do you not believe? Do you not trust? Do you not know? I have things under control. And from the dry safety of our living rooms, sitting on our couches, maybe in your pajamas, we can happily shout out, hey, Peter, eyes on the king. Look to Jesus, Peter. Don't look at the wind. Don't look at the waves. But this is significant. And I know some of you are saying, yeah, Pastor Mark, and it's also so obvious you don't even need to point it out. But at the risk of overstating the obvious let me point out the implication there in verse 31. The trials and the crisis, the storms that we face are the stuff that test and approve our faith. Let me say that again. The trials and crises and storms are the very stuff that test and approve our faith. In fact, our faith is actually only proven to be true when we've walked through the storms of life. As I'm prepping this week, an old song that will date me. Many of you young people will have never heard this song. But back from my teenage years, Andre Crouch in the 1980s was a well-known gospel musician, an incredibly talented guy from California. He lived an incredibly difficult life, and yet he had a long list of accomplishments. He's in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. He has a star on Hollywood Boulevard. He was the producer for music for several movies like The Color Purple and Disney's Lion King. But he also had many, many tragedies in his life. He lost his mother, his father, and his brother all in the course of a short 12-month period at one season in life. He had great highs. He had great lows. He was a pastor's son, and he 
eventually went on to pastor that same church that his father had pastored. But on another occasion, he was arrested for possession of cocaine, ups and downs, highs and lows. And one of his most popular songs in the 80s was this song, Through It All. And the words say this, I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There have been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation, God gave me blessed consolation. That my trials come to only make me strong through it all, through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God through it all, through it all. I've learned to depend on his word. Now, the several verses in the last one is like this. I thank God for the mountains. I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he brought me through. For if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. You see, it's that last line that is salient to our discussion and to this text. That the only way we know that God is faithful to carry us through the storm is when he actually has to carry us through a storm. I'm sure you're like me that you have been inundated with emails and articles and blogs and webinars and podcasts. One of the articles I received early on in this pandemic was the question, what if this is not just a blizzard, but the beginning of a mini ice age? And in that article, the authors say this, they say the novel coronavirus is not just something for leaders to get through for a few days or weeks. Instead, we need to treat the COVID-19 as an economic and cultural blizzard, winter, and beginning of a little ice age. A once-in-a-lifetime change that is likely to affect our lives and organization for years. And it's that last statement that jumped off the page at me and triggered some memories. A once-in-a-lifetime change. A once-in-a-lifetime event. And reading that paper triggered a memory and it took me to my bookshelf and I grabbed a book that I bought for two bucks back in 2003. I found it browsing on the sale table at Armchair Books in the middle of Whistler Village. And it was the title that grabbed my attention. The title, An American Prophecy, The Fourth Turning. Picked it up, began to flip through it, ended up buying it and read it. And I know that you didn't come for a book review, but the subtitle of this is fascinating. What the cycles of history tell us about America's next rendezvous with destiny. Just bear with me for a moment. If I had to summarize this book in just a few short thoughts, the basic premise is this, that America, North America, but specifically the U.S., is standing on the brink of a major cultural shift and that it is predictable and certain based on 500 years of historical evidence. Chapter 1 is entitled, Winter Comes Again. And the first sentence is this sentence, America feels like it is unraveling. This was written 23 years ago. The authors lay out a solid historical background that cultures rise and fall and that they follow predictable patterns, just like the seasons of spring, summer, fall, and winter. 
And then if we're willing to learn from the past that we will see that in this 80 to 100 year cycle of cultural highs, awakenings, unravelings, and crises, spring, summer, fall, winter, high, awakening, unraveling, crises, that each season follows the other with an eerie and uncanny predictability. Now, you may be ahead of me and you know where I'm going, but the last great winter in North America was the twofold crisis of the Great Depression and World War II. That was followed by a cultural high of the late 40s and the 50s where cultural institutions grew strong and the family was strong. This was followed by an awakening and a rebellion of the 60s and the 70s. And by the early 80s, we were entering the next season of unraveling as another generation inherited the chaos and the implications of the revolutionary years before it. And this last season has been a season defined by apathy of individualism, of narcissism, of entitlement. But the winds of culture will inevitably shift again. A new season will inevitably come. And if history proves itself to be true, there is going to be some trigger event or more likely a series of events that catapult us into the next winter. Now, remember, this book is written in 1997, and they say it is going to be something like, and they give a whole list of possibilities. It's fascinating when you read what they suggest, a global terrorist attack on U.S. soil, a pandemic that quarantines the population, an impasse between Congress and the president that shuts down the government, an economic meltdown and the devaluation of the dollar, and on and on the list go. But there will be a spark, they say, in the early 2000s that signal the start of a new era, a new crisis. And it might take 10 or 15 years to coalesce, but guaranteed, they suggest, by the year 2025, we will be fully into the next cultural winter. Now, I know you're wondering, you, you got to be wondering, where are you headed with all this sociological, historical gobbledygook? And it is simply this that an ancient book of scripture called Ecclesiastes tells us that there is nothing new under the sun. The number one hit on Billboard's top 100 hits in 1965, to every season, turn, 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 based on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That great book opens with these thoughts, generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And if you're wondering now, what on earth does this have to do with COVID-19 or with Matthew 14? It is simply this. That I believe the greatest challenge in this moment in time, our greatest challenge in this moment in time is actually to rise above this moment in time and to take a macro view of history and to look back and take the lessons from previous generations and to ask ourselves whether or not we might be on the brink of the hardest and yet the greatest possibility of change that our society so desperately needs. Never in our lifetime, at least not for most of us, maybe the very oldest among us, have we faced a time like this collectively. 
But what if we are on the brink of the greatest cultural revolution of our century and certainly of our lifetimes? Might this pandemic be one of those trigger factors? We know we will get through it. Absolutely, life will go on. But what does the full screen view reveal? We know that storms pass, but we also know that cataclysmic storms can radically alter the landscape that's left behind. Rivers can actually completely re be rerouted in a major flood season. Entire beaches can disappear in hurricane-force winds. Mount St. Helens is 2,000 feet shorter than it was before the blast in 1980. Life will not look the same. And I wonder what the Lord is up to in this storm that we call COVID-19. My prayer has been, and I'm sure that many of you have been praying the same prayer. Oh God, oh God, would you use this crazy, surreal time for your glory? Would you use it, this time in human history, to turn people towards you? Would you use it for your glory and for a spiritual awakening? Even this week, I've been praying that someone who listens to this message will find themselves drawn into a faith conversation that they would have never dreamed having eight weeks ago would not have been on their radar. But everything has changed. So as much as our human tendency is to seek for comfort and pain-free living and to press through this as quickly as possible, our greatest growth inevitably comes in those dark, stormy valley, valleys of life. And I've got to challenge you. I've got to challenge myself that we do not waste this storm. So before you fall entirely to sleep, you're already laying over on the couch. What might we take away? And the key implication and application that I want to take is implied in verse 30. When Peter saw the wind, he began to sink. And by implication, the opposite is true. That as long as his eyes were on Jesus, he walked on the storm. The waves were crashing around him, but he walked above them. Eyes on the king of the waves. Eyes on the master of the storm. Eyes on the one who knows the future. Eyes on the one and only one who can hold us up in these times. But lose that focus and we are quickly overwhelmed. And the reason that we can trust Jesus is because he endured the greatest storm the human race has ever faced. The storm of our rebellion against God. The hurricane winds of the just wrath of God that would be rightfully poured out on the sins of humanity. And Jesus Christ steps into the brunt of those hurricane winds, the judgment of God in our place, and dies the death that we deserve to die, who braces the storm winds of God's judgment on our behalf. And how did he do it? How did he withstand? Hebrews 12.2 tells us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him. You see, there's the key. That Jesus looked past the storm to the other side. He looked beyond the winds of judgment that he was absorbing. 
to the joy of life renewed, of life restored, of all things made beautiful again. As Ecclesiastes said that he's set eternity in the hearts of men, that there's this longing for renewal. And can I encourage you this week, in the midst of this crazy storm, that regardless of its impact so far on your life, that you would fix your eyes on Jesus, eyes on the King, eyes above the wind and the waves. Remind yourself of what you know to be true, that he's been faithful in the past and he will be faithful to us today. Remind yourself of who Jesus is, that declaration that the disciples made in verse 33 must be ours. Truly, you are the Son of God. We can take our hands off. It might be the hardest thing for us to do to release the rudder and to step out onto the waves. And finally, we need to be intentional. Intentionally turning our eyes towards him. Intentionally turning away from other distractions, not spending as much time with the nightly news and more time alone with Jesus in prayer with others in the word. Eyes firmly on the king who knows and rules the waves and the wind. And frankly, it is an age-old message. It is repeated often through the centuries. That we know for certain that in this life we will face trials and difficulties. Jesus said it. But that King Jesus has overcome all the struggles of the world. And beyond the waves, above the waves, in control of the waves, is our King. And what the storm cannot take from us and what does not change in the midst of the storm is the presence and the power of the king. And so, friends, let me encourage you. Eyes on the king. Eyes on Jesus. Let's continue by praying together. Will you join me? Father, we know that those listening and who have heard your word preached this morning, there are many of us who are in the middle of storms right now as we speak. We also know that you are a God who is not far off, but a God who is close. So I pray particularly for those struggling with the isolation, struggling with loneliness, struggling with anxieties right now. God, I pray that you would draw close to them. We think of our missionaries who are around the world, um, who are maybe experiencing the effects of this in different ways. God, I pray that you would continue to sustain, continue to provide perspective and provision as they need it. You are a God who has been faithful with them. God, would you continue to show your faithfulness to them? God, we pray for our church in our community. We pray for our church in our world as, as they faithfully teach your word. God, I pray that your word would continue to equip and challenge your people as we need it, particularly in this time. We think of our government and our leaders who are making decisions. God, would you continue to guide and lead and give wisdom as they make decisions for us as citizens of our countries? We ask all these things in your name. God, would you be at work in and around us and give us eyes to see it. In your name, amen. We're gonna take a moment to give back in worship to God for what he has richly blessed us with. Now we know this season has been different for everyone and things are particularly hard right now for some of us. So if you're a part of the Northview family, we encourage you to continue to give as the Lord leads you. But if you're new here for the first time, please don't feel obligated. 
We have a couple options for you to give. You can go online and give at northview.org. You can text give to the number on the screen. Or if you'd rather, you can mail or drop off your check at the Northview Downs Road campus. Last week, Adam was here and he encouraged us to give to the CARE Fund. So he's back to give us a little bit of an update. Amazing. I might do it. Yeah, that's good. All right. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, I talked at length about how great this text to give option is and specifically how it can be used to give to the CARE Fund, which we haven't been able to take uh, recently because we usually just do it with cash at our services. So I encourage you to give five bucks and guess what? Uh, I am so excited to announce that so many of you did and so many of you responded generously and I'm very excited to announce that in the past week, we have received $18,000 for the CARE Fund. So if you wanna know more about that or how you can do that or understand more about this text to give, you can check out our Instagram and we're gonna have a video there to tell you all about it. So thank you for your generosity and uh, that's all from me. <laughs> we're gonna continue now in worship as Frank and the team are gonna come back and lead us in a couple more songs. So guys, this is a new song for Northview called Is He Worthy? It's gained a lot of traction outside of the church and many people have actually been emailing and calling and texting and asking, hey, we really wanna sing this song in response to all who God is. And so this is a song uh, really explaining the worth of Christ of our praise. So he's so worthy of our adoration and our praise. So why don't we sing Is He Worthy? Is he worthy? 
joining us today. We encourage you to join us next week as well. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Northview, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website. And finally, as I send you out, I'm going to encourage you with a word from John 16, verse 33. Jesus says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Have a great week. <laughs>